0: Welcome to the weekly appellate report for October 2nd, 2017, the first Monday in October. Words, of course, with a very particular meaning for the legally inclined as they mean the opening of a new U.S. Supreme Court term. And after a couple of years where, beginning with the passing of Antonin Scalia, the court's most significant events were outside the four corners of any brief or opinion. October term 2017 opens with fully nine justices set to hear several of the sort of momentous, intractable disputes that elude a resolution except by our country's court of last resort. I'm Brian Cardale, your host of this weekly Daily Journal podcast, considering salient pellet and constitutional law issues. And today, as the Supreme Court marshal calls to order the term's first arguments, we'll hear viewpoints on four of the court's most consequential cases, ones involving potential limits to politically motivated election maps, the balance of power in labor dispute forum selection, the conflict between public accommodation laws and the wedding cake baker's First Amendment rights, and whether Fourth Amendment doctrine has kept pace with modern technology. All cases set to shape constitutional jurisprudence for years to come. In Gill v. Whitford, set for argument this week, the court has another chance to opine on the eternally bedeviling issue of political gerrymandering, or the drawing of curiously shaped electoral districts delineated strategically by a ruling party keen to keep its grip on power. Since then Massachusetts Governor Elbridge Gerry approved the maps that inspired the portmanteau in 1812, the court has been determinedly agnostic on the practice over the past 200 years, deciding most recently in 2004 that such map drawing, though perhaps clashing with constitutional ideals of representative democracy, was the type of political question not fit for judicial review. But as factors like data aggregation allow map jars to more precisely lock in majorities or supermajorities in states with roughly equal political splits, the court will once again consider whether, in certain instances, it can and should step in. Here at issue are maps drawn by a Republican-controlled Wisconsin legislature in 2011 that enabled the party to win 61% of the state House seats in 2012 while capturing only 49% of the vote and 64% of the seats in 2014 while winning 52% of the vote. Tom Wolf, counsel with the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, believes these maps and election results demonstrate that the time has come for a judicial doctrine on political gerrymandering. He joins us now, Mr. Wolf. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So the issue presented by this case of political gerrymandering um, and whether or not the Constitution provides a remedy in instances when there's extreme occurrences of um, politically motivated redistricting efforts uh, seems to be a bit of an open question still. The court dealt with political gerrymandering last in 2004 and was pretty hopelessly divided then in a, a case that rendered a pretty split decision of four justice plurality, a concurrence and the judgment, and, and four dissents. And that split, that divisiveness seems to kind of really symbolize the Gordian knot that, that this issue has, has tended to manifest itself as when it reaches the, the courts. Um, four of the justices, the, the plurality there determine that political gerrymandering claims are just sort of categorically out of bounds. They're the sort of uh, wheelhouse, non-judiciable political question uh, claims that the court really has uh, doesn't have the ability or doesn't have the constitutional business to to weigh in on. Um, four dissenters felt that the court should have stepped in and remedied the maps at issue there. Justice Kennedy, as ever, of course, in the middle with this concurrence saying that, you know, not then, but perhaps at some point, the court would have a role to play in um, guarding against extreme political gerrymandering. Uh, and it seems that point of view is echoed by contribution that you made to the, the SCOTUS blog in, in a post about this case where you said um, you know, certain extreme instances uh, should be remedied even if uh, political gerrymandering as a whole is not the sort of thing that courts can or should really stamp out. So what, uh, what was the plurality's reasoning? And was Justice Kennedy's idea behind kind of leaving the door open for the courts to step in at some point? Was it with a case kind of like this one, gilford Whitford, in mind?
1: I like the way you led off in noting that the issue here in the case is whether there's a remedy for unconstitutional maps. The um, VIF opinion, which was um, one of two big opinions in the area in the mid 2000s, was famously fractured, but one point that all the justices agreed on was that. Severe partisan gerrymanders are incompatible with democratic principles, and they violate the Constitution. And that's something I think can get lost in the discussions of the case and the, the attempts to sort of parse out exactly what, what these means. But it's definitely important for our baseline understanding of the dispute in the area. So there's constitutional problem in our democracy, and so far the court hasn't been able to set meaningful limits on it. That's in part because of what the plurality did in that case. Uh, when they, when the plurality said that these claims were non-justiciable, they basically were saying first that none of the standards that were offered in the Supreme Court's prior major opinion, Davis v. Vandemer from the 80s, none of the standards offered by uh, any of the justices that were in dissent in these, and none of the standards offered by the Amakai were discernible, meaning that the plurality couldn't see how those standards could be derived from the Constitution. The plurality also didn't think any of those standards were manageable. Uh, that is to say, they thought that it'd be impossible for courts to apply any of those standards in a reliable, principled, predictable way to distinguish between maps that were extreme and thus unconstitutional maps that weren't extreme. And so as a result, the plurality just concluded these are the types of claims that are non-justiciable political questions. Those are questions that the courts shouldn't even bother trying to get involved in solving. There's some other sub-arguments wrapped up in there, but that's sort of the general framework of the plurality's opinion. Justice Kennedy didn't go with the plurality. He said he'd rule for the plaintiffs if he could see what he called uh, some limited and precise rationale for identifying unconstitutional maps. And the reason why he held out hope, there are probably actually a number of reasons. Uh, He thought that there could be some really bald, flagrant maps that violated the Constitution. He thought that technological developments could lead to more bad maps if courts didn't act, but he also thought that technology could help courts identify bad maps. I, I think that Wisconsin's map is a fact pattern that should prompt the court, and that's including Justice Kennedy, but the other justices on the court, too, uh, to act. But I think maybe the question is better understood in terms of whether our, our whole current state of affairs is a state of affairs that the court should be looking to act on, and I think the answer
0: there is, is yes. What do you mean when you refer to our whole uh, state of affairs?
1: Sure. So we're not just talking about what happened in Wisconsin, but we're looking at what's happening around the country and what's happened since the last time the court took up this issue. So last time the court took up this issue, it wasn't able to arrive at a majority position to police partisan gerrymandering. And by failing to establish a red line, for partisan gerrymandering, they basically created a green light for partisan gerrymandering. And we've since now moved into this era of what we're calling extreme gerrymanders, where one party takes control of the redistricting process and then locks in a majority or even a supermajority for the whole time. And they're able to do that now because of changes in technology and data. We're sort of in a position now where the court really needs to act. It may not have, have another chance come next decade to act and put a stop to this.
0: Now, if if that opinion in, in, in V from two thousand and four, the the green light, as you describe it, let the kind of pendulum swing too far in one direction towards the allowance of extreme political gerrymandering. Um, One concern is that a a favorable ruling for the the plaintiffs here would have that pendulum swing too far back. And this argument takes the shape of the traditional slippery slope one, where if you say, okay, there is a role for courts to to correct or throw out maps that have been drawn by state legislatures, uh, duly elected folks, in some of those instances, the courts that would throw out those maps would be single judges or panels of three folks. The Concerns that that would tend to occur or could occur too often and, and, and that there wouldn't really be any firm or limited instances where you would know, okay, those ones are okay for the courts to weigh in on, but you could instead have instances where the courts weigh weighing on every single redrawing effort, which would present some uh, administrative and other types of problems. Uh, You seem fairly confident in your writing that there is a a workable line to be drawn that would limit courts' uh, input in this type of context to to some pretty limited situations, right? Yeah. My
1: position is, I think that the the concern about the floodgates of litigation opening if there's a cause of action for partisan gerrymandering created in this case. I think I hear those concerns, but I think they're overblown and I have a, a few reasons for thinking that. Uh, you know, the, the nature of the threat at this juncture is clear and it's limited. So I just mentioned these extreme gerrymanders that have emerged uh, in recent years where one party is able to, it basically wins a majority at the time it's time to draw the maps. And they use that fortuitous majority to basically lock themselves in as a majority for 10 years. At that point, you even wonder why you bother having elections every two years. If it's really only that election in the zero year that gets you control over the maps. These kinds of gerrymanders don't occur everywhere and they likely can't occur everywhere. So we now have a discrete issue that we can target, it's very concrete, it's very practical. That's one party entrenching itself for a whole electoral cycle. I think the court can create a doctrinal standard that targets that narrow problem. I think just evidenced by the fact that the district court could do that, and the plaintiff's standard could do that. Those two standards use slightly different terms, but the district court refers to entrenchment, the plaintiff's refer to excessive and durable asymmetry, but they're effectively aimed at the same things. Um, And that practical harm, entrenchment, helps define the necessary intent here, the intent to entrench. That's not normal politics. It's not something that motivates politicians generally in their day-to-day interacting with other politicians. It's basically partisan warfare, very rare. Uh, It's a very particular kind of partisan intent. Um, The effect is also really stark, like practically speaking. As I mentioned, it basically obviates the point of having elections. And constitutionally, it violates basic values of accountability and representativeness that have been part of our constitutional democratic tradition from the beginning. It also violates the First and Fourteenth Amendments. So basically what it does is it creates these maps that are like way outside the constitutional pale. Um And at that juncture, we're really kind of moving in like a, a narrow state of exception. And so when When I hear the concerns about floodgates opening, I read that more as a concern about, or or to respond to that concern, to be focused more on how to define the cause of action clearly and narrowly and make it very clear to people what it is the cause of action is meant to prevent and what it's not meant to prevent. I think that's how you resolve that issue. I think the bigger problem we're facing here is the court's really facing a decision between not doing anything which is going to open up the floodgates for even more extreme partisan gerrymanders in the future, particularly now that the playbook's out in the open and the technology and the data are at a point that allow these sorts of things to be made. That's sort of one choice. Or the other choice is to intervene here in a narrow way that's going to put in limits now to stop these extreme things from happening on a broader scale next cycle.
0: Maybe... Uh, drilling down a little bit further here, if you say that courts can identify when the line is crossed between normal politics and and something that's extreme, something that unduly entrenches one party that's won a fortuitous majority around the time of the census, um, what are some of kind of the, the concrete discrete factors, maybe quantitative things a court could look at, identify, and and muster in saying that, okay, this has crossed the line?
1: Yeah, there There are a lot, and this is one of the reasons why Hopefully there'll be more of an appetite in this case for stepping in. So there are two kind of background factors that you, that need to be in place in most cases to see really extreme maps. Uh, one that I would consider basically close to a prerequisite, which is one party controlling the whole redistricting process. Another thing that might help smoke out bad maps is the uh, states have had recent histories of close statewide elections. Uh, and to unpack that a little bit, because it might not be like completely. Um, intuitive. Uh, single party control is basically a precondition for an extreme map because the intent to entrench one party in power is not something the rival parties that are going to get hurt by that are going to allow if they have the opportunity to stop it. So if they have some sort of procedural check on the process, odds are the map that comes out won't be extreme. In terms of close statewide races, there are a couple things uh, in play here. So when uh, you have a lot of close statewide races, odds are that one party's not going to be able to lock itself in power for a whole decade unless it starts to really get in there and really manipulate the map pretty extensively and carefully. Relatively, when you have another large party in play, the party in control of the process is likely to have the kind of status anxiety that would they'd need to have to even justify spending all the time and money to gerrymander the maps. like you have to be afraid that you're going to lose your hold on the legislature to justify, like in Wisconsin, them spending four months and and all that money uh, to secretly cook up a map. And the other thing is that the key to creating these kinds of extreme gerrymanders is to to create as many districts for your party as possible that are in the kind of 5248 range, 5347 range, that you know you'll win them, but you won't waste too many votes in winning them. And you can really only do that in states where there are a lot of members of the other party. And that's a state like Wisconsin that, you know, it's not Nebraska. This, the, the county-wide election returns for instance, in 2016 in Wisconsin show a lot of light pinks and light blues. It's not a, like a state like Nebraska where once you get out west, basically everything is, is deep red. Mm-hmm. Um, now... I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that you also have these social science metrics like measures of partisan asymmetry. Um, and we have these other statistical techniques now, these simulated mapping applications. Uh symmetry measures help identify maps that are heavily biased in favor of one party. They also help you figure out if your bias has reached a point that it's historically unlikely that your bias is going to collapse over the course of a decade. Simulated mapping applications can help you figure out when your bias so extreme that it's unlikely intentional. Um, but you know, Whitford is not ultimately about the math. Uh, it helps a lot, but you don't always need it. Like the district court used it as corroborative evidence, but it didn't really base its opinion on it. These these are all evidence of intent and/or effect. Um, but you can also look at actual election results. You can look at overseeing the mapping process. You can look at statements of intent. You can look at statistical analyses that uh, the map makers undertook, which are very similar to these kind of partisan asymmetry sensitivity testing style things that the plaintiffs are recommending. Um, These are all things that courts can can and have used in other settings, and they can kind of fit into the the general framework that we've used in in cases coming out of the 14th Amendment line, like Arlington Heights. Um, So there's Nothing particularly unusual about what's going on here, but particularly in a case like Whitford that has such a thick record from having gone to trial and just having won, there's a lot
0: for a court to work with there. When you say that certain maps like the one here are, are beyond the constitutional pale, um, specifically you know, what part of the Constitution do you think provides the most firm grounding for that sort of argument? Because you have seen, in, in this case, 14th Amendment arguments and First Amendment Arguments. One sort of first reaction to Fourteenth Amendment equal protection clause arguments is that you know, well, political groups are not traditionally the sorts uh, of groups that, when uh, discriminated against, will trigger heightened scrutiny by the Supreme Court. Um, So, do you think that is uh, an argument with merit than an equal protection clause claim, or is there sort of more firmer constitutional footing within the the First Amendment, say, right to association? Um, What are your thoughts on that?
1: Before I, I step into the question of uh, 1st or 14th Amendment, I'd want to take one step back. So I think that in addition to looking at constitutional amendments, you should also be looking at constitutional values that are reflected in the the text and structure of the Constitution Mm -hmm. and and the history of its uh, creation and application. So we know that our constitutional democracy originated in a couple of concerns about legislatures. We wanted them to be accountable and we wanted them to be representative of uh, the constituents. Uh, those are, are sort of ultimate things that a lot of the rights we enjoy exist to help make the reality. Uh, and so what one thing that pushes these maps beyond the constitutional pale is that it makes it very hard to hold legislators accountable when they're basically when they have a majority that's locked in for a decade and when you have a, you know, a vital diverse state like wisconsin you know it's a, it's a purple state and in part it's a purple state because there are large numbers of people that have competing views and when they have kind of an open forum to go at it we have a very rich debate but then you end up with one note legislatures that are hard right or hard left depending on what state it is and it's very hard to argue that a legislature that's pursuing an extreme agenda in one direction or another is truly representative of, of the interests of the state. It truly doesn't mirror the state. Now, with the First and the Fourteenth Amendment, I think it can be both. I think some of the most convincing writing that I've read on this comes from Professor Dan Takagi at Ohio State, who has worked on an idea called uh, First Amendment Equal Protection. Uh, he also put in a brief in this case with a series of other electional scholars, a lot of whom write on similar themes. The idea here is, you know, whether we're talking about the 14th Amendment or the First Amendment, we have the state saying that one group should be treated differently from the way another group should be treated, and the reason for that is because of the way that that disfavored group acts uh, politically. Now, I realize that political parties are not suspect classes for purposes of 14th Amendment analysis, but any kind of distinction still has to have at least a rational basis and it's very hard to argue that government action that's oriented towards systematically disempowering one particularly large block of voters in a state has any kind of rational public regarding purpose that we recognize as legitimate under the Constitution. So there's been a lot of work on this recently, too, that I find very compelling in an article by Justin Levitt, another by Michael Kang, uh, both of which emphasize the fact that this kind of tribal partisanship uh, is not... Not legitimate government action. I think that helps you know, break any sort of perceived tension between uh, 14th Amendment and First Amendment concerns.
0: Maybe uh, I could just raise a couple of other counterarguments, independent of the, the slippery slope one. One being that this phenomenon, of course, is, is nothing new. The original Jerry uh, Mander is you know, back from the early 1800s, and the courts have yet to see any any reason or any opportunity to step in and stop it. Um, so it's gone on for a long time and it's sort of part and parcel of our politics. And also, it seems to be the sort of thing that I suppose would favor, you know, one party or another alternating, you know, certainly both parties over time have have used or potentially abused the political gerrymandering process. Um, so kind of why why now? Why should courts now decide that, okay, this far, but but no further, we, we have to step in?
1: Well, while I agree that Partisan gerrymandering has been happening for a long time. Uh, I think there are a couple of important facts to keep in mind. So partisan gerrymandering has been decried since it was first deployed. And there was a brief put in by a series of academic historians in favor of the uh, Plinkus Appelies, in this case, uh, from the Skadden Law Firm that I'd really recommend folks check out. They make the very strong point that any any claims that historical understandings of the Constitution were consistent with partisan gerrymandering is, the the phrase they use is demonstrably ahistorical. Um, Early gerrymanders were very different from what we see now. They relied really heavily on malapportionment, which the Supreme Court took a huge bite out of uh, when it finally decided to step into the political thicket. Um, Data on voters wasn't as good as it is now, and it was much harder to predict outcomes. That's all very different now. So now we basically have the situation that everyone has well, not everyone, but a very large number of people for a very long time have considered to be unconstitutional. And uh, the kind of dark art of gerrymandering has become this dark science, as my colleague Michael Lee likes to explain it. Uh, we've now created a situation with these extreme gerrymanders where the people can't correct them through the political process. And once you get to that point, the court has to step in. There's there's no other answer to the question.
0: One other uh, argument that I that I've seen raised is that while it's undeniably true that the Constitution and, and our, our the foundation of our government um, is based upon the idea of representative government and the folks having having a voice in in their governance, um, you know, the the selected method of of choosing our representatives. Um, it entails this possibility of there being a disconnect between the percentage of votes the party receives and the percentage of um, seats they get in a legislature. If you have, you know, say, hundred seats in a in a state legislature, um, and you have hundred districts, and each vote is fifty-two forty-eight, you, you could have for one party you have hundred folks from the same party in, in, in the chamber, but a pretty equal uh, share of votes for each party. Uh, and there are of course, alternative electoral systems we could use, but we, we haven't chosen those. So we, we have this one that we've chosen, and does it say that we value less the uh, the need to have a, a pretty direct and consistent um, link between the percentage of, uh, of votes and seats? Uh, what do you think about the, that, that argument?
1: You're definitely correct that districted elections aren't generally going to result in proportional representation. I think one of the plaintiffs is said a few times in, in the Whitford case they prefer to the sort of two to one ratio that for, um, every 1% over 50% you get, you are likely to have you know, X number of more seats. Uh, but ultimately the point of policing partisan gerrymandering isn't to get proportional representation. Um, the point is to get legislatures that are more representative of their constituents and legislatures that can be held, held accountable. Uh, by the constituents, and as I mentioned earlier, the the notion that a hard left or a hard right legislature is somehow representative of the character and the interests of a purple state is really hard to explain, and a decade long supermajority is really hard to hold accountable. Um, so I think when we're kind of focusing on both the harm and the ideal state, we're looking for something other than, than proportional representation. Um, Frequently wrapped up in this is, is the concern with clustering of, of Democrats and Republicans, the notion that the way things are going, it's basically impossible to create a map that is fair, uh, that, you know, is, is, um, symmetrical between the two parties. And that, that's another argument that's made a lot, but the factual basis isn't there for it. And particularly not in the case of Wisconsin. I mean, it's ultimately a state-specific question, but, um, in Wisconsin, the kind of, bi- the extreme bias you see in that map wasn't caused by clustering. It was caused by people going into a room for four months and spending a lot of time and money using statistics to try to game the map. Uh, and what I would definitely recommend folks check out, a uh, Amicus Brief that was written by Professor Rick Pildis and a team at Sibley Austin on behalf of a few political geographers. Where they really tackle this in, in extreme depth and I think very convincingly.
0: One, one last one, if you care to to venture a forecast, uh, how do you think the, the court might approach this? Obviously, the, the players are a bit different than in two thousand and four, but do you think there still are a handful of votes that might think this is this is a political question? It's not something court should consider. Is this going to come down to how Justice Kennedy decides? Do you, do you think we will get a, a decision on the merits as to to whether these maps are are constitutionally okay?
1: In an area like this that's so hotly contested, it's hard to say with certainty what's going to happen. The way I've tried to approach it is to focus on the reasons that we should be optimistic that there can be a breakthrough here. Uh, So in other words, looking at if all these things were true, this would put us in the best position to have an ultimate opinion here that's favorable for people like myself who'd like to see some limits on partisan gerrymandering. And so what I would say is if you're looking for hope, here are a few things to, to hold on to. Uh, one is that the plaintiffs have the opportunity to present the court with a really flagrant example of extreme gerrymandering. And hopefully that will uh, make it very clear that whatever the question is about measuring uh, extremity in any particular case, that this is, this is clearly extreme. Um, we know that there have been new social science developments since the 2000s to help ID bad maps. There's been a very significant political realignment around the issue. Um, Senator McCain, Arnold Schwarzenegger, John Kasich, Bob Dole, Jack Danforth, uh, a number of sitting legislators both at the federal level and the state level who are Republicans have come out and asked the court to do something here, which I think makes it harder to uh, present the case as something that's just motivated and created to benefit one party. Social science experts are, are unified, if the briefing is any indication, that uh, the court can reliably and predictably smoke out bad maps, and it's very clear that things are only going to get worse in the future, and I think that these things will combine to help show the court that they're been to act here and they have the ability to act here.
0: I suppose we'll find out relatively soon. This case is up for argument uh, on, on Tuesday of the, the opening week, so uh, we'll, we'll get our answer here after not not too much longer. For now, Tom Wolf of the Brennan Center for Justice. Thanks very much for sitting down to do chat about the case with us. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Perhaps the most salient First Amendment free speech and free exercise case of this term, Masterpiece Cake Shop First, Colorado Civil Rights Commission, many arguments and counterarguments have been made by parties and commentators alike addressing the question of whether or not the act of baking and selling a wedding cake is expressive conduct, something with special purchase in First Amendment terrain, or if it's instead better described as a fairly typical commercial transaction, something more susceptible to regulation. For instance, as here, public accommodations laws mandating business owners treat patrons similarly regardless of their sexual orientation. Our next guest, Rick Hills, professor at NYU School of Law, argues that drawing such a distinction is both impossible and beside the point, as First Amendment doctrine tends to be concerned more with the governmental purpose underlying a regulation, be it licit or invidious, rather than an individual specific burdens. Here now is Professor Hills. Professor, thanks for being on the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now, a lot of the, the arguments that have been leveled from uh, different sides of, of this case um, tend to comprise arguments about whether or not the, the act of baking a cake is a, is speech or expressive conduct, it's something that would implicate the, the First Amendment free speech doctrine, and then perhaps set up some sort of heightened scrutiny as this being an instance when that expressive conduct, the cake baking, is, is compelled. Um but you've written recently for ProfsBlog.com, uh, you wrote that the the focus on that question is not particularly fruitful and also just sort of impossible to answer because a fair analysis here would lead one to, to assume it's not really possible to say whether or not this cake baker is either an artist or a businessman when he's, he's pretty clearly both. Um, what, um, what, what sort of leads you to, to, to make that argument? What why is your focus less on that question of whether or not it's an expressive act to be baking a cake?
2: Well, in general, I think it's a mistake to measure the constitutionality of a law um, by either the intentions um, or the uh, of the person who the law regulates or the effects of that law on the person. Um, in general, I think, with, for instance, the First Amendment free speech clause, the focus should be on the reasons that the government has. They're genuine reasons for the law. And so we allow laws all the time to regulate activities that are obviously expressive and communicative. If I were to go outside at 2 o'clock in the morning in my neighborhood in Brooklyn and start screaming political slogans, nobody would deny that my action is absolutely intended to be expressive and has the effect of expressing a message nevertheless i would be committing a nuisance and if the police came by and shut me down no one would call it censorship and so it's always been understood that content neutral time place and manner regulations of speech are perfectly acceptable regardless of how artistic or expressive or political or communicative that speech is so it just seems to me a red herring to spend a lot of time focusing on whether a baker is an artist who's trying to send a message or a businessman who's trying to make a buck, because all of that is just beside the point normally in First Amendment law. Now, there are a couple exceptions of, to this general background rule, but my basic instinct is to say focus on the government's reasons, not the speaker's purposes.
0: So what... Uh what is the, the doctrinal grounding upon which parties that make that argument that focuses on an individual's expressive conduct and, and the burdens that an individual would face? Um, what, uh, what cases give rise to those arguments?
2: Well, they're relying on two lines of argument. One is a um, line of doctrine that categorically prohibits the government from forcing people to speak. And I think the two classic cases are Willie versus Mader. In which the court struck down a um new hampshire law that um placed on license plates the slogan mm-hmm. live free or die um, and the maynards challenged this saying that um it violated their beliefs um which included you know a, a strong streak of pacifism to people required to carry the slogan the court agreed with them you can't force them to carry a slogan live free or die Another case in this line of anti force speech cases is Miami Herald versus Tornillo. Um, and it, that involved a, a Florida law that gave a right to reply to politicians or anybody else um, who had been subjected to an op ed in the newspaper. Um, and the court struck down this right of reply, which would give the private individual a right to publish their piece in the newspaper, in this case, Miami Herald. And in both cases, the court said, look, you can't force a private party to bear somebody else's message, carry their message on their car or in their newspaper, in their utility bill. So those four speech cases um, are being used to say you can't force a cake baker to carry somebody else's message. A second line of cases um, that they're relying on are rights of expressive association, uh, Cases that defend the right of an organization not to associate with a person who disagrees with their message and dissents from that message. And the key cases here are Hurley, which involved an Irish-American parade um, in which um, gay and lesbian paraders wanted to march in the parade, carrying messages that the organizers of the parade disagreed with. And um, Dale, Voice Scouts of America versus Dale. Um, in which the Boy Scouts wanted to fire a scoutmaster, but New Jersey public accommodations law said you can't fire scoutmasters based on their sexual orientation. The Boy Scouts said that the scoutmaster's homosexuality would um, erode their message about proper sexual behavior. Um, And In in both of those cases, the court said that state law couldn't force an organization to associate with a person. So, you can think of the forced speech cases as saying you can't force someone to be associated with words, and the expressive association cases as saying you can't force someone to associate with a person if that association will erode their ability to send a message. And these cases stand out from the normal background rule in the First Amendment, which is that um, content neutral laws that don't have the purpose of sending a particular kind of message um, normally get fairly minimal scrutiny. But I tend to think that those lines of cases should be very narrowly construed. And indeed, if you read the cases with care, you'll see the court is really concerned with the reasons for the rules being challenged, and not simply the effects of the rules on the speakers.
0: How do you mean? Because I I know in in your piece that you said if you kind of dig deeply into the cases or the arguments, then you, you might find that even though on the surface perhaps they seem about the burden that folks might uh, might feel if they're forced to – compelled to, to make speech or associate with with folks. They'd rather not um, that you unpack the cases enough and you do start to see some sort of governmental purpose-based arguments, right? Yeah.
2: Well, if you look at the details of the language and say Dale Hurley and Pernio, Miami Herald case – You'll see the court, although it says, look, you can never force someone to carry somebody else's message. And the court doesn't really look into the purpose of the Florida law to evaluate how weighty that purpose is. Um, The court actually says in the court, in the the course of deciding the Tornillo case, um, the Florida statute exacts a penalty on the basis of the content of a newspaper. It's content-based regulation. Which it is, of course, it says to a newspaper, um, we want you to say certain words and we want you to say those words because we're interested in the communicative impact of those words on your audience. It's hard to imagine a more specific regulation um, based on the content of speech and a regulation that has precisely an expressive purpose of trying to affect um, how people interpret the newspaper. And the same thing goes for Hurley and Dale. Um, One of the things that the court says at the very end of Dale is that if you have no better reason to regulate the Boy Scouts than that you disfavor the sort of message that they're trying to send, that's not a good enough reason to regulate them. And so I think a sort of implicit assumption in Dale and Hurley is that the reason for applying these public accommodation laws to a parade or to the Boy Scouts in New Jersey, was that you didn't like the message that the organizations were sending through their activities, through their discrimination. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that really the spirit of both the expressive association cases and of the forced speech cases is that certain kinds of regulations basically scream out that the government is interested in controlling the message that is being sent by the regulated party
0: maybe kind of grounding all that into this present case, Um, what what are the problems that you would see with arguments based on on the burden felt by the baker? And do you think arguments could be better suited um, to kind of make those latter points that you were making, that maybe there's something kind of improper about the government's purpose in in using this sort of public accommodations law to apply in in this type of situation?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I find it very difficult to know how much this is affecting the baker's expression. I assume that the baker who bakes a, a beautiful cake and by the way, the cakes that are baked by Jack Phillips look pretty beautiful and very creative. Um, you know, obviously that kind of baking is an expressive act. It seems silly to argue that it isn't. Um, so, you know, if we're trying to measure the effect of a law on somebody's expression, I think it's always open to someone to say that they put a lot of heart and soul into their work. Um, I would say the same thing, for for instance, about an accountant, a lawyer, a business person, a salesperson. I don't know any salesperson who doesn't try to put a lot of creativity into their sales pitches. And they put their heart and soul into it. And so going around trying to grade different occupations and professions by their creativity or expressiveness is a fool's errand. Um, it's insulting to the people who lose, um, and it's um, excessively restrictive on government's discretion for people who win. Because, as I say, normally it's irrelevant how expressive your job is if the government is not regulating you because of the expressiveness of your job. So, you know, so uh, it, it seems to me um, that the proper approach in these cases is to ask, why is the government enforcing an anti-discrimination law against a banker in this case. And I could see a plausible, not a rock solid, but a plausible argument that the only reason to enforce this sort of anti-discrimination law in this specific context is because you don't like the message that the baker's trying to send by refusing to provide the wedding cake. Now, I'm not saying that this argument has been proven. Since the case wasn't briefed and argued, in the administrative process and in the courts below on this theory. I think that this theory um, this purpose-based theory is a little bit difficult for the Baker to sustain. But if I were to be arguing this case or briefing this case or filing the complaint in the first instance, what I would try to focus on is the government's reasons and ask what possible reason could there be to force someone to provide a specific kind of product for a specific kind of ceremony when there are so many other competing providers for that product. In this case, Jack Phillips claims that he's perfectly willing to serve gay and lesbian customers. He just does not want to serve a wedding cake for a same-sex ceremony. And so it seems to me that Jack Phillips' strongest argument should be, the only reason that you're applying this anti-discrimination law against me is you don't like the message I'm sending. When I deny service or put another way, if I put a sign on my front door saying, I don't do wedding cakes for same sex ceremonies, that message would be a kind of dignitary harm to same sex couples or to people planning a same sex wedding ceremony. And it's really that message that you object to, not the loss of a market opportunity to buy a wedding cake Because really you haven't lost the market opportunity to buy a wedding cake. There's so many other providers, and I'm perfectly happy to refer you to another provider. So it seems to me that's his strongest argument if he has one. Um, now, I'm not saying that that's a winning argument because I think Colorado might come back and say it's very difficult to run an anti-discrimination system um, with a um, referral defense where a regulated commercial business can say, well, I won't provide the service, but somebody else will. Because that means that um, you would have to essentially apply a different anti-discrimination law to each vendor based upon the particular market that they were serving and assess the market. Bakers in tiny little towns where there were no other bakers would obviously be covered more stringently than bakers in big cities where there are bakers across the street. So I could see the Colorado Civil Rights Commission coming back and saying that would be a huge administrative hassle for us to try to adjust um, our anti-discrimination law based upon the referral opportunities or the other providers that are available. but nevertheless, that seems to me a much better argument than saying baking is expressive, because it just doesn't seem to me relevant to say that baking is expressive. Baking might very well be expressive. If the government is not trying to shape your expressive message in any way, then it shouldn't matter whether the government has an incidental impact on that message.
0: Well, our attorney listeners will appreciate your, your kudos to their uh, creative bo- bona fides as on par with a uh, wedding cake artist. Um <laughs> is there a worry at all when you when you say you know the argument should focus more on well this government purpose must kind of be insidious because that's a hard thing to prove right it's, it's fairly difficult to show a governmental purpose especially if you have a facially okay uh, statute it can be fairly difficult to find any basis to, to say okay the purpose is to discriminate against me someone that has religious beliefs that are you know, make me not want to be a part of this ceremony to the extent that I am. Do you think that it is possible to kind of make that showing? Is there a word that it's too difficult?
2: Um, Well, notice that often when the um, court is dealing with purpose-based tests, um, it might adopt bright-line rules that certain kinds of laws um, will be presumed to have a bad purpose. I mean, the most obvious example in the equal protection context is the case of a facial classification based upon race, where the court generally presumes that the purpose of such a law is um, not sufficient to justify it. That's, what I think, the best understanding of strict scrutiny. We see a racial classification. We presume that that law can't be justified by ordinary legitimate government purposes. So I can imagine that certain kinds of laws, like Florida's right of reply statute, would be presumed to have... A content-based purpose. Why else would you require words to be written in a newspaper? Those kinds of categorical presumptions, um, that certain kinds of laws have a bad purpose, don't fit very well with regulations of businesses um, where you're not the face of the law doesn't mention words, doesn't mention expression, um, doesn't mention the communicative impact of the law. However, I could see certain applications of a public accommodations law that might fall within such a categorical ban. Let me give you an example. Suppose that Jack Phillips were to say, okay, I will supply wedding cakes for same-sex ceremonies on the same terms that I supply them to heterosexual wedding ceremonies. However, I wish to put in my store a sign that says... As a Christian, I disapprove of same-sex wedding ceremonies, and so I do this cake, these sorts of cakes, under duress. Imagine that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission said that sort of speech is constructive denial of service. They had a special rule or maybe an administrative decision saying that, in effect, what you're saying to same-sex couples who come to you for a wedding cake is you're not welcome here. So we demand that you take down that sign or be fined. I could imagine Jack Phillips in that case saying, aha, now that you've applied your law specifically to a sign and told me to take it down, it's pretty clear that your purpose is to prevent me from communicating my message of disapproval. And in that case, I can imagine the court saying, although you can require Jack to bake the cake and deliver the cake to the same sex ceremony, you can't require Jack to take down the sign. You know, so that that would be a case in which I can imagine the court saying certain kinds of laws will be presumed to be content neutral. But when the law actually requires words to be taken down or words to be put up, we're going to presume that the purpose of the law really is to get Jack either to say words or not to say words. I take that to be the rationale behind um, Miami Herald versus Tornillo. Frankly, I take that to be the rationale behind Hurley, the parade. Thing.
0: We've been sort of talking in terms that sound a little bit more in, in free speech, but uh, I understand that your argument kind of has equal application in the, the free exercise uh, doctrine or the free exercise territory as well, right?
2: Absolutely. There's a general background norm in, in under the free exercise clause since 1990 that facially neutral laws that don't single out religion either in their terms or in their purpose are subject to fairly minimal scrutiny and don't raise serious free exercise of religion claims. So if I were to pass a general law um, banning the use of a particular narcotic drug and that drug happened to be used in a particular religious ceremony of say a Native American tribe, the court has held that that law, even though it has incidental effects on that religious ceremony, um, should be deemed not to be a free exercise violation because it's not targeted at religious ceremonies and it has a non-religious purpose, a non-sacramental purpose, namely, it's designed to prevent addiction um, or um, erratic behavior from the product' mental effects. That general principle is closely ana- of the Smith case is closely analogous to the principle of content neutrality in the free speech area, um, and that Smith case is lo- the biggest obstacle to a masterpiece. Um, cake shop bringing a successful free exercise
0: claim. I certainly have uh, an interesting oral argument and an opinion to look forward to. This is a, a case that's been on the, the conference docket for a long time, so i um, be curious to see um, how this court deals with the case that has seemed a bit reluctant to, to take on. Uh, but for now, Professor Rick Hills from New York University School of Law, thanks very much for joining the podcast to chat about it. I appreciate it.
2: It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Three Consolidated Suits, Epic Systems v. Lewis, Ernst Young v. Morris, originating in the Ninth Circuit, and NLRB v. Murphy Oil. The court will consider whether NLRA provisions ensuring employees' rights to act collectively trump the Federal Arbitration Act's general presumption in favor of the alternate dispute mechanism has truly colossal importance for employment and class action law going forward. Here to further unpack the question is Chris Baker of Baker Curtis and Schwartz PC, who filed an amicus brief in the matter supporting the employee's position. Mr. Baker, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. You have found a, an amicus brief in support of the employee position in these cases and the consolidated cases before Supreme Court. Namely, that position is, uh, in essence, that the, the National Labor Relations Act uh, guarantees employees the right to act collectively to advance and protect their, their rights and their interests. Um, and that class action lawsuits are squarely within the, uh, the type of collective action foreseen by the NLRA. Um, before we get to kind of the meat of that argument, I wanted to just ask about the individual on whose behalf you, you filed this amicus. She's, uh, of course, not one of the members of the, the classes involved in the cases themselves, but she's Susan Fowler. She was a software engineer for Uber until voicing pretty publicly and passionately her concerns about the company, the workplace environment, its practices, its ethos, obviously has some interest in the determination of this legal question. Tell me a bit about uh, Ms. Fowler.
3: Um, She had a poor experience at Uber. She uh, wrote a blog post about it, and, and it had some
0: fallout. No. Talking about the central issue of this case, whether or not employees um, need to to bring their grievances against the company individually in arbitration, or if they can act collectively in in class actions in court, obviously that question turns on a particular clause in employee agreements under which employees agree to arbitrate individually. That sort of individual arbitration waiver, that is has become pretty common in in employee uh, contract agreements, right?
3: It's become extraordinarily common in employment agreements, and that is because of the class action waiver, especially for larger employers. The only way they can prevent class actions or or prevent collective actions, in their mind, is to have an arbitration agreement. And given the advantages of preventing collective or class actions, uh, the cost of an arbitration agreement is is smart. It's like purchasing insurance can be more expensive for the employer on an individual basis, but they prevent aggregated claims.
0: Okay. Now, we've had three different circuits in which these cases have wound their way through. Uh, a couple have sided with the, the employee position, finding that these sorts of arbitration clauses cannot be cannot be enforced. One has sided with the employer. Um, can you tell me a bit about the, the procedure before the Supreme Court has gotten a chance to weigh in on, on these cases, and if any other circuits have also weighed in on this this question?
3: So the 5th, the 8th, and the 2nd Circuit have sided with the employer. Um, the 6th, the 7th, and the 9th Circuit have sided with the employees. But interestingly, both the 2nd Circuit, judges in the 2nd Circuit and judges in the 5th Circuit, uh, have expressed, I'm not going to say regret, but have expressed, their belief that they would likely have come to a different conclusion um, uh, if they had a chance to do it again, as opposed to following precedent. So, mm-hmm. the, so the weight of the, the appellate court judiciary is, is in favor of the employees, I think it's fair to say at this point.
0: Was that voiced in, in concurrences in those opinions?
3: That's right. It was voiced in a Second Circuit opinion and also in a recent Fifth Circuit opinion, uh, that if, people, if, if these judges were writing on a clean slate, uh, they would go with the Seventh and Ninth Circuit Opinions.
0: Getting into the argument itself, it turns upon the, the National Labor Relations Act. To which uh, portions of the Act are specifically invoked and what do they uh, provide for?
3: So, um, Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act gives employees uh, the right to engage in quote-unquote protected concerted activity for the purpose of mutual aid and protection. Section 8 of the NLRA says um, an employer violates the NLRA if it violates Section 7 rights. And then there's another labor law statute that's implicated by the case, uh, the Norse LaGuardia Act, which basically says that yellow dog contracts, um, which are described as contracts that require employees to give up the right to engage in concerted activity as a condition of employment are illegal. because. Back in the 30s and 40s, that's what employers were doing. They were saying, if you want to work for us, you can't join a labor union. That
0: That's Section 7 language referring to collective action and uh, union formation and, and bargaining collectively, doesn't specifically mention or provide for class action lawsuits. But in in the brief that you write in support of the employee position, you argue that essentially these class action lawsuits are sort of the 21st century equivalent of collective bargaining of, act, of acting in a concerted manner, sort of the, the 21st century equivalent of what NLRA had in mind. But uh, the language itself doesn't exactly mention them explicitly, right? Well,
3: no, the, the language doesn't say employees have the right to bring class action lawsuits. Right. Um, But the idea of collective litigation has been around since old English law and the idea that when the statute was first passed um, that an employer could still prevent employees from joining together to petition the government or to petition a court, you know, certainly would not would have been encompassed in the original language. I mean, uh, collective litigation is an activity and the statute protects concerted activity and um, collective litigation is also quote-unquote concerted action, employees acting together. I think that even when the act was passed, it encompassed this kind of collective litigation. Um, I think what Susan's brief says is that it's so much more important now because of changes to the work.
0: Some of those being that workers can tend to be maybe spread out across the country in different areas, not all coming to the one central factory or something like that.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's that's one big thing, right? Which is, you know, where are you going to put a picket line, mm-hmm. right? It used to be you would publicize the labor dispute by putting up a picket line. You would discourage employees from crossing or not just employees, but also customers and others. From crossing the picket line to frequent the employer's business or to perform work. And now there's no place to put the pickets. Um, because employees work from home or they work from Starbucks or they're driving around the city connected to their employer with a, by, with a smartphone, right? So the value of picket lines has decreased. Um, which leaves this other component of concerted activity, which is going to be collective litigation.
0: Uh, another central theme, another central argument in, in your brief takes on uh, a notion and an argument that's pretty re- reliably resorted to by employers when the idea of arbitration comes up—that it's it's cheap and it's a cheap and efficient means to to settle individuals' claims. Um, you say pretty strongly that that's essentially a, a fiction that it's not cheap uh, or efficient. What, uh, what 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 is your argument uh, on this point?
3: Well, my argument is that, you know, any, any lawyer in the employment space knows that employment arbitration is not cheap. And I say this as somebody who was a defense lawyer for 17 years um, and is now does both defense work and, and plaintiff's work. Um, employment arbitration is super expensive, right? It's super expensive for the employer. The arbitrators are reluctant uh, sometimes to control the proceedings because they don't want their decision vacated because they failed to hear all the pertinent evidence. Um, under state laws, you get to do just as much discovery as you could do in a state court. And arbitration and, and arbitrators charged by the hour, charged by the day, and it can be fifteen thousand dollars a day. So this idea that oh yeah, arbitration, it's uh this really cheap and super easy way for us to resolve our cases is just hogwash. It's it's not true. And and people who get up there and say that it is true um, don't know the facts on the ground but are rather relying on old legal opinions um, back in the day when when it probably was true, right? When it was labor arbitrations and you have the union on one side and the employer on the other and you went in there and you Put on your case, and it was done. But that's not how it works anymore. It's it's just not.
0: Arguments about the the efficiency of arbitration policy arguments are certainly not the only ones that employers will bring to bear in this suit. Um, probably the the central rebuttal the employees claim is the the Federal Arbitration Act um, provides for sort of a presumption in favor of arbitration. The Supreme Court uh, pretty uh, it's pretty well known that it is generally smiled upon the practice of arbitration, especially within uh, the tenure of Chief Justice John Roberts. Um, could you unpack for me the, the employer's side, the, those, those employer arguments, and sort of what the, the counters are for the plaintiffs in, in the face of, um, of general policy of favoring arbitration based on the, F- the Federal Arbitration Act?
3: Yeah. I mean, the employer's best argument is that the presumption in favor of arbitration is so strong that it cannot be overcome unless there is a federal statute that says the Arbitration Act does not apply to this statute. That's their argument. Um, And the response to that is, one, that's what the NLRA says because, you know, it, it outlaws yellow dog contracts which prohibit contracts that prevent collective action. And two, um, there is a savings clause in the Federal Arbitration Act, which says that it doesn't apply when faced with generally applicable contract defense. You know, I think it's interesting um, because I think that this is one of those cases where everybody assumes your con- your traditional five-four split. You know, but I think I think this is more of a legal argument than a political one, and I think the legal argument is better for the employees and for the national labor
0: relations. Agreements and arbitration clauses like this will often have opt-out clauses that allow employees to to refuse, to forego their right to class action claims. Uh, To what extent do you think that opt-outs could undermine the employee's position, the reliance on the NLRA? How would opt-out provisions affect kind of the legal calculus and and the the arguments in this case?
3: It doesn't really save the arbitration agreement because you're still uh, making somebody waive prospectively their right to engage in concerted activity. And... Even Supreme Court precedent it is pretty clear that you can't use arbitration to obtain a prospective waiver of a federal or state right. And that's why arbitration agreements that like try to shorten the statute of limitations are invalid. For example, um, you can't you can't change the law or have prospective waiver of rights as part of an arbitration.
0: You mentioned uh, political dynamics. One salient one here is that the Solicitor General's office has changed its position on this case. The Solicitor General has now uh, decided to reverse course and support the employer position in this matter. That That's not a particularly common occurrence, is it?
3: It is not a common occurrence, but it's not unusual. I mean, it, it happens sometimes when there's been a change in presidential administrations, right? So, but I think, you know, the impact of it is, is, Negates any force that the uh, that the brief of the solicitor general has, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the court's going to kind of roll its eyes and say, "Well, it's politics, right? Of course." Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be more focused on what the parties are saying, and in this case, what the what the NLRB is saying, right? Because you have the NLRB seeking to uh, uphold its rule, while the Department of Justice is saying that the NLRB is wrong. so it's just kind of a okay politics. I, I don't think that that uh, the court will pay too much attention to the Solicitor General's brief, uh, which you know in a lot of ways just kind of repeats arguments that the parties have already made.
0: Okay. Maybe just one last one. Uh, if you could give me a sense of how far reaching you think the impacts of the eventual determination of this case could be. It seems like employers are putting quite a bit of stock into the enforceability of clauses like this. So if the employee position were to prevail, it seems like it would really be a, a bit of a seismic shift in employment law and uh, in class action litigation.
3: It would make class action litigation easier because right now, you know, the first thing you have to do is get over the class action waiver. Right, so for example, take all of the cases against Uber. Um, those cases, you know, which are which are great cases, haven't gone anywhere um, really because the first thing that Uber does is say, "Ha ha ha!" Class action waiver, you're stuck, and then you spend three hours, three years fighting about that. And so, if you clear that procedural roadblock, um, you know, it's going to make everything go much quicker. And I should also say, it's going to make. Companies get their act together with respect to making sure they comply with the law, right? Because they're not going to want to face the, the the aggregated liability. And right now, with these class action waivers, you know, the employers say, yeah, we might be breaking the law, but, but what, right? It'll be, you know, one person brings an arbitration, we either settle that or we um, fight it all the way through, but it's not going to have any impact on us and it's not going to have any impact on our business.
0: These, uh, these cases are set for argument, I think, pretty early on in the term, so we'll have... Um Uh, Our answer to how this case is going to turn out uh, soon, soon enough for now, Chris Baker, Baker Curtis and Schwartz PC. Thanks very much for being on the podcast to chat about it. I appreciate it. I was happy to be here. For a few decades now, the Supreme Court has generally reasoned that individuals cannot reasonably expect that information they voluntarily convey to third parties will remain private from government actors that might seek that information. But as modern technology demands ever-increasing information sharing, that approach might be ripe for an update. Our next guest, Jim Harper, filed an amicus brief in the upcoming SCOTUS case, Carpenter v. U.S., and joins us now to explain why he believes that Fourth Amendment protection should apply in situations like Carpenter's, and that the entire reasonable expectation of privacy construct is an unfortunate and undue deviation from the terms of the Fourth Amendment itself. Mr. Harper, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me on. In the amicus filing that you, you've submitted, uh, along with uh, Ilya Shapiro, Cato, in this case, the Carpenter v. U.S. appeal, where the court is considering... Um, a relatively new type of thing that can be either searched or seized, and must be done reasonably. This cell site location information showing where um, criminal defendants may or may not be um, approximately. It presents a, a fairly broadside and, and provocative argument about the Fourth Amendment doctrine uh, as it's been applied, and in, in this case, and recently, saying that it's at this point has very little to do with the Fourth Amendment itself. Um, what exactly do you, do you mean by that? Well, the reasonable
4: expectation of privacy test, which is so familiar to people. I I sometimes joke that lawyers can't say the word privacy without the prefix reasonable expectation of. It's, It's so far away from the terms of the Fourth Amendment, and it's essentially a sociological method for applying the Fourth Amendment rather than a juridical or legal method. That is, the doctrine asks courts to figure out what society thinks is right in terms of privacy and then apply it to that case. That's not something judges are good at doing. They, Well-intended, smart, and well-educated as they are, schooled in the law, they're not sociologists. They aren't in a, in a position to conduct the kinds of study you might do to do a genuine sociological uh, assessment of privacy. And on top of that, uh, the technology is changing, and so actual privacy expectations around technology must be changing, or they haven't formed up yet. So the doctrine is not really up to... The challenge. The alternative is to return to a form of textualism, as applying the terms of the Fourth Amendment. But what's really important is is applying the Fourth Amendment, uh, animated by knowledge of how the technologies work. So ask yourself: Was there a seizure? Was there a search? Was it of protected things? Are that is, our digital documents, papers, and effects, is the main question. And then if you've answered all those questions that, uh, yes, the, 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 the other terms of the Fourth Amendment are implicated, was it reasonable? That's that's a, a, a juridical, a legal way of applying the Fourth Amendment. And if you like, we can go into some of the details about how you apply the concepts of seizure, search, and the papers question to, to digital stuff.
0: Sure. Yeah, because it, it seems like the, the, the reality that oftentimes courts would be presented with things other than you know, papers or houses, which are easy to say whether or not they've been searched or seized or not, um, kind of prompted the the court to adopt that, that reasonable expectation of privacy test, kind of by necessity, because those harder cases really didn't seem to to have a, a connection with the, the terms of the Fourth Amendment. But you say that that's that's not the case; that uh, you could still just uh, refer to the terms themselves and get to um, a and result that way.
4: Right, you can you can actually uh, uh, go back in history and see communications are the special problem for for the court when it comes to the Fourth Amendment. But you can go back in history and draw a line all the way from Ex parte Jackson up to the present day. That there's a pretty good systematic way of applying the Fourth Amendment to communications. Ex parte Jackson was the case that established that the Fourth Amendment protects mail in transit, uh, except with respect to its outward for, weight and form. Um, uh, some think that that created a doctrine of, of uh, uh, content versus non-content or a distinction between the two. In fact, it's it really comes down to the physics of the matter. When information is concealed uh, in, in, in that day by paper folded a certain way and sealed, uh, then that information is protected by the Fourth Amendment as though it were still in the home. Uh, the stuff on the exterior, including the weight and dimensions, but also the address that's written on, on the exterior and any any other type of uh, communication that might be on the exterior of postal mail, that's available and it's unprotected, just like open newspapers or postcards are unprotected by the Fourth Amendment when they're in transit in the mail. The next, uh, it was actually the year that Ex parte Jackson was, was decided was when uh, telephone service began in the United States, but it was 50 years after that in 1928 that the court considered whether uh, telephonic communications uh, were protected under the Fourth Amendment, and the court got it wrong. Uh, Chief Justice Taft announced in in kind of uh, incoherent terms because he laid out the specific actions law enforcement had took. He he declared that that uh, listening in on the telephone line was the use of hearing and hearing alone. Of course, there had to attach a wire, and they had to attach a device to to collect the uh, uh, the analog electrical signal and convert it into sound. That's not hearing alone, but uh, uh, Justice Butler had an excellent uh, dissent there. Most people talk about Louis Brandeis's dissent, where he talked about the right to be let alone. But Justice B- Butler had a dry, uh, technical legal dissent where he talked about the fact that uh, telephone communications providers basically rented the line to the users, so it was their property for the time for that time. And he also said that the communications themselves were something of the users. That's a property-like, uh, a property-like term. Well, that was in dissent, and uh, as most people know, fast forward again many, many years to 1967 when the Katz decision created the reasonable expectation of privacy test. But that was Justice Harlan's solo concurrence uh, and not necessary to the decision of the case. Rather, the majority said that uh, Katz, who had been speaking in a phone booth, uh, saw his Fourth Amendment rights violated when the government collected the sound of his voice by bugging the phone booth. Uh, you can you can go back to that uh, that idea of sealed mail. Here was a person who had concealed the sound of his voice from others by entering a phone booth. The sound was literally stopped by the the glass partitions uh, that 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 uh, made up the phone booth. And the court majority found that that was what gave him his privacy. Unfortunately, the the doctrine that grew up after that was based on Harlan's talk about reasonable expectations of privacy. Shooting just forward into the modern day. Our modern communications are digital, but they uh, at a high level of abstraction are the same as writing. What we're doing instead of putting uh putting letters and numbers on paper is we're converting that same type of information into into digital signals. The digital signals, long story short, travel invisibly and inaudibly along wires uh, and and uh and cables to be reconstituted as that that, that information at the other end. If you apply the the, the theory of Jackson through Justice Butler's dissent in Olmsted and even the majority decision in Katz, what you get is that these items are the property of the communicators and accessing them and converting them into a human readable signal are seizing and searching under the Fourth Amendment. The question is whether that's reasonable to do.
0: I suppose I might ask why you think with those kind of different presidential judicial threads, that that existed. Why you think the the idea of this reasonable expectation of privacy is the one that kind of took hold? And maybe the one thing we haven't mentioned yet is what grew out of that—the the, third-party doctrine—that features sort of prominently in this case. Um, you know how why they seem to be the the most persuasive to the court over the past generation or so. Yeah,
4: to be sure, the cast majority was not as clear as it could have been. Um, And so it takes, I mean, maybe it's a charitable reading on my part to say that that Katz is in the same lineage as uh, as Jackson, but I think it is. Um, And I suppose the other side of it, again, sort of guessing at how these things develop is that Justice Harlan's uh, talk of privacy was so attractive to people. The late 60s into the early 70s was a period of uh, foment in the area of privacy because uh, mainframe computers were just getting their start. And so there was a, perhaps in a parallel today that we might laugh at that era, <laughs> given the computing power we have today, the, that was an era where people were really worried about privacy. And so I think maybe they fixed on Harlan's talk of privacy as the, as the locus of Fourth Amendment decision-making. And, and that attractive uh, way of talking about the issue brought people to regard that as the most, as, as uh, a quasi-majority opinion it really was not the majority's reasoning but it t- certainly certainly took hold moving forward with the idea that the 4th amendment turns on having an expectation of privacy that society finds to be reasonable that two part two part formulation you've started to get into these corollaries um, one of them not so relevant to this case is that a person can't have an expectation of privacy in illegal material say drugs um, since there's no society, societally recognized expectation of privacy in holding drugs, any search that's, that's uh, well enough directed at finding drugs isn't a search, according to that doctrine. Uh, for me, that's kind of backwards because I've just characterized it. it's, it's It's intensive examination, but we're not going to call it search because, because of this theory that it doesn't invade a legitimate privacy right. But more, more relevant to this case is the third-party doctrine. And that arose in a case called U.S. v. Miller, dealing with um, uh, banking records under the Bank Secrecy Act. Uh, and, and it continued through Smith versus Maryland, which dealt with telephonic records, a case out of Baltimore where a man had been stalking a woman and broken into her home and started um, pr- uh, you know prank calling her or, or uh, uh, stalking her Uh lawn and he'd even driven past her house. He drove a Monte Carlo, if I remember the facts of the case well. That's because driving a Monte Carlo is is ipso facto suspicious today. Um, the uh, the court found invalidating uh, uh, an examination of his telephone records that he had no expectation of privacy in them because he'd shared them with the phone company, and you have to. So nobody could possibly expect privacy in these things. Uh, the Smith versus Maryland case is is what the United States government. Uh, believes to validate NSA programs that gather, uh, uh, at times have gathered, all of our uh, telephonic records. That's a big leap from from one person with about whom there's good evidence of criminal behavior to to all of our phone calls. But here the argument is that uh, information that the telephone companies must collect about our locations is is equally uh, not protected by the Fourth Amendment because it's been shared with a third party.
0: Um, I just wanted to parse out for for a second maybe your your principal qualm with these outgrowths from the Fourth Amendment because you know is is the problem that they t- tend to be attenuated from the the terms of the amendment themselves most problematic or is it that in application they uh, cause some problems because certainly the Fourth Amendment is not alone um, in seeing some judicial gloss applied to it. You know, the Fifth Amendment doesn't mention Miranda rights, of course, but that's grown up around it, and, and other ones have seen some judicial outgrowths, um, kind of which is the problem, just the fact that it's uh, not, it's attenuated from the terms or more th- in application?
4: I think my starting point is probably the application, that the the genuine threats to our privacy that we do face with technology and the failure of that doctrine to protect us. In, in that that's 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 my starting point which I, which is a sort of confession right because uh, i might be engaging in a massive uh, program of directed reasoning to try to achieve a particular <laughs> result but i'm but i'm joined in that in that because the um, Supreme Court has said uh, a number of times that their goal is to establish the same protections for privacy that people enjoyed uh, in the founding era exactly what that is so they're the, the court itself has a, a sort of outcome uh, outcome preference which is to maintain a level of privacy that uh, that existed in the past uh, Justice Sotomayor in in her concurrence in Jones talked about how the third party doctrine is, is very very much out of step with modern living uh, we share so much information with third parties, by dint of using telephones and cloud services providers, even medical care. Obviously, there are details about our, our health are shared both directly with, with doctors uh, and nurses and other professionals, and when we use those services online, financial services. In addition, that's, there's just a massive quantum of, of personal and rightly private information that we share with third parties. So how can it be
0: that this doctrine
4: uh, denies it all
0: Fourth Amendment protection. You, you mentioned U.S. v. Jones there, the 2012 case. You, you write in your brief that that, along with a couple of the other prominent Fourth Amendment cases here that have reached the Supreme Court over the past few years, has provided a bit of a maybe nebulous framework for kind of this new approach you, you suggest. But uh, have, have they not been dealing in the reasonable expectation of privacy terms? Why do they uh, provide sort of a, a newer framework?
4: Well, the reasonable expectation of a privacy test is attractive, and and for almost 50 years uh, every lawyer has been learning it when they study their Fourth Amendment. But the court itself has not been using reasonable expectations doctrine all that much for the last uh, 15 years or so. If you go to the major decisions of the recent period, it is not the decision rule that the court uses it's not very clear about what decision rule it is using and that's part of why we've been briefing the court arguing for it to return to a more textual approach that I think is more protective. But look at examples the Jones case is one. This was, this was law enforcement agents attaching a GPS device to a car without the benefit of a warrant allowing them to do so. And the attachment allowed them to track the, the uh, driver for, boy, it was uh, nearly a month as I recall, 2,000 pages of material on the location of this car. Yeah, that is, a, is actually a seizure case. The court referred to it as a search because it's a little bit sloppy in its reasoning. But, uh, but the essence of it, and this is how the Second Circuit Court of Appeals characterized the case, was as a, a seizure case because the, the, the law enforcement agents uh, took, took use of the car, made use of, some, of a piece of property that wasn't theirs to transport their GPS device around. Uh, similarly uh, the Kylo decision, K-Y-L-L-O out of 2001 involved the use of a a heat sensing device to create thermograms that that reflected what the what the heat profile of a house was. This was a search case it didn't involve a seizure they were on public property and able to examine the heat profile of the house without uh, invading any property right but they converted invisible uh, heat emanations, invisible radiation from the house, into uh, visible uh, images that that suggested excess excess heat and uh, thus uh, marijuana grow lamps on the inside of the house. The court found that that was a search. Um, that was that kind of directed looking that uh, rises to the level of, uh, of search. Neither of these cases, uh, some of the most important cases, and there are plenty of others, uh, went to that question of whether there was some sense of privacy that had been invaded and that the, the privacy finding would drive the question of whether a search had occurred or not.
0: Okay. Uh, maybe to, to begin to close, if if you could put put into sort of more concrete terms what we've been talking about, if you ran the, the facts of this case through the two different uh, doctrines, the the one that exists sort of now around the reasonable expectation of privacy and then in the and the cleaner one that you present, that cleaves more nearly to the Fourth Amendment, how does it turn out uh, in either or, or both of those?
4: I think if you were to to do a reasonable expectation of privacy analysis, uh, the case might come out well, and that's that's based on uh, the Jones decision, where a unanimous court found uh, that there was uh, an unconstitutional search uh, by using this GPS device, but but four members of the court relied on reasonable expectations, uh, uh, the, that rationale. I think they would, again, in this case. It would be up to the litigants and, and Amiki to, to say that location information is really, really sensitive. It's really, 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 really sensitive and private. It really is. And if the court agrees, then you, you get that good result. And I think they probably would. My preference, though, again, would be for uh, not for importuning on the part of litigants to, to win the day, but for a, a tighter textual analysis to occur. And mine is this. Uh, on the question of whether there's a seizure, I think it's almost a given that the operation of law required the telecommunications provider to turn over this information. The telecommunications provider would be punished, and perhaps severely for refusing to do so. So I think that's a seizure of the data in question. Whether the data is searched, I think, is also in the affirmative, though it's not important if you've got that seizure, you're, you're further along in the constitutional analysis. Orrin Kerr, who's a, who's a widely, widely uh, cited Fourth Amendment expert at George Washington University, uh, talks about this, this detailed question of when is data searched. And he finds that data is searched when it's converted into something that humans can perceive. That conversion of the ones and zeros into something you can see is the search. So I think there's a search of the data as well. One of the key questions, of course, is whether it's a paper or a fact. And, I, and I, I believe that courts must recognize that digital documents serving the same purpose as cellulose did, that is, paper did in the founding era, must be recognized as papers. And even early, uh, you know, the early dictionary definitions of papers referred to, to records in toto, when, when one's papers were searched, that did not mean that one's materials made of, you know, flat cellulose were searched. That meant the documents, the information that they kept around themselves. So given that understanding of papers, I think we are talking about papers here. Then there's the question of whether the defendants in this case owned the papers. And for that, so the, the, the papers are clearly in the possession of the telecom, telecom company. And, and some might think that that disposes of the issue. But there are both contracts and regulations that give the telecommunications user what I think are property rights in the data. We've seen, we've seen, and few of us have actually read all the way through, these privacy policies that every manner of website and digital service provides. But those privacy policies almost invariably accord to the user the right to exclude people from this data, except in the circumstances that are that are laid out there. So we own, as as consumers of digital services, we own most of the data, in terms of the right to exclude. The service provider can use it for their purposes, which include maintaining their networks and marketing, and sometimes uh, sharing with financial affiliates and things that to, to, to many are are concerning or objectionable. And that's not the question here. But they are not permitted to do whatever they want with the data. We retain the right to exclude. And this goes back to that bundle of sticks notion that many of us learned in law school that there's the right to use, the right to possess, the right to exclude, the right to the profits, and all these other things that make up the property right. When data is is acquired by the government, obviously it doesn't take away the right to possess. The telecom company still has it. But it does take away the right to exclude from, from us, the users. Uh, We have had that as as a matter of contract, and that goes away if the government uh, takes the data to to do whatever it will with it. Similarly, there are regulations on point, and uh, the Federal Communications Commission has uh, a a regulation called the Consumer Proprietary Network Information Regulation. Calling it proprietary, I think, uh, illustrates how this stuff is thought of as um, a property-like item. And the rules, the CPNI I rules, as they're called, are also quite property-like in that they accord certain rights to users and certain rights to the telecom companies. Uh, whether you like whether you like your property rights created by contract or by regulation, there's a, there's a point for you there. So I, I think that those are papers of the defendants in this case, the petitioners. The final question is whether it's it's reasonable to to access them, and the and the Fourth Amendment uh, joins the Supreme Court's. Uh, precedence to, to suggest that when there's not exigency it is the reasonable thing to do is to go and get a warrant. So law enforcement should most likely get a warrant uh, in almost all cases when they're trying to access this information. It's the, uh, the the standard benefit of going to a neutral magistrate to make sure that the law enforcement efforts are well tailored and appropriate to the circumstances. I think they're called for
0: in this case. Okay, I these are certainly always pretty fascinating and tricky line drawing questions. And obviously, depending on uh, where the where the line is drawn, certainly depends on what kind of doctrine is applied by the courts. So it will be very interesting to see uh, how they they run this one through the Fourth Amendment doctrine uh, this time. Uh, for now, Jim Harper, uh, Vice President of the Competitive Enterprises Institute, thanks so much for uh, being on the podcast to, to speak about the case with us. Thanks for having me on. show for october 2nd 2017 the first monday in october is complete hope you enjoyed it and stay tuned throughout the term for more commentary and insights on these most prominent of legal questions i'm brian cardell i look forward to speaking to you next time have a great week